From the Old Testament, Psalm 51. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I will now share the gospel reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we uh, reflect on words that are familiar to many of us and words that we may have even taken to our own lips at different points in our lives when we have felt the desperate need to plead to you and cry out that you would create in us clean hearts, we ask that this morning as we reflect on these together that you would speak to us by your spirit and we would know how we might be individuals and a community of people that inhabit these words as a part of our conversation with you and one another. Meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So uh, it's good to be here in the Liberty Building at 17th and Sansom this morning. I know a lot of you watching are really excited to see the interior of a building that many of you have worshipped in many times. And it's a joy uh, for all of us to be together, even if it's just a little bit. And it's visual still for you, but it's good to be here. So this is an important psalm uh, that Christians and people of God really throughout generations have utilized to shape their conversations of confession. So a few weeks ago, <coughs> excuse me, I was uh, listening to a podcast, uh, the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett. It was an interview that she did with Eula Biss. And Eula Biss had written a very influential article in the New York Times back in 2015 called White Debt. Maybe some of you have read it or listened to the podcast yourself. Um, But it was a fascinating and convicting interview in many accounts and fronts. But I really got curious about one of the rabbit trails that uh, Krista Tippett went on in the conversation. And it was around this theme of of guilt. Uh, There was a moment when Biss was observing the relationship between debt and guilt and asking if there was any real productive way for human beings to engage guilt. Because if you think about your own life, right, when you think about moments when you felt guilty, how, have, how has that left you? What, what happens when you're confronted in your guilt or your sin, right? We know that, that our typical reaction is to feel stuck, to feel immobilized by guilt. Um, maybe we spiral into a space of self-pity, which is never a productive way to talk about wrongs done. You pick your poison. Guilt is a powerful notion. And at one point in this little moment of the, of the rabbit trail, Tippett just said, I, I, you know, we don't do shows on guilt uh, because no one, particularly in dealing with a polarized topic like racism, wants to shut down conversation. We just want to open conversation up. And she wondered out loud for just a brief moment that if maybe one of the reasons we have such a profound difficulty of transcending and moving beyond racial discrimination and white supremacy is our failure to engage the guilt of it. Our struggle with this word, to live in productive ways with guilt, We live in an era and an age in which it's very difficult for many of us to speak of sin. We don't like to talk about the topic. Barbara Brown Taylor, Episcopal priest and theologian, professor, has written a wonderful book on the losses of this word, the consequences of the losses around this word. But guilt is the debt side of sin, if you want to think about it that way. But within the Christian frame of mind, while sin and guilt are very real and substantive realities that we're called upon to engage and understand and even own in some real sense, they are never God's last word to us. They are never the final reality that God hopes for us. And this psalm is one of the pieces of the puzzle of prayers and a conversation with God that helps us understand how we might actually live productively with guilt in an action of confession of sin. Psalm 51, if you notice, if you've read it before, you know that it's attributed to a particular moment in King David's life. It's the moment in which he's been exposed as a sinner himself by the prophet Nathan, whom God sent 
to help David recognize his abuses of power against Bathsheba and against her husband Uriah, and really against all of Israel and the people that he would lead. It's a profound moment of darkness in David's life. And so this psalm becomes a moment in which we might think about the dark spaces of our own lives. So imagine yourselves this morning in King David's shoes. You've been exposed. For the first time, you're woke to your sinfulness. You're awake to this guilty thing upon your life, this dark part of your own story and humanity. You're aware of this, some space of relational hurt, some space of moral failure or ethical failure, some conflict inside of a relationship in which you've behaved in ways that diminish the relationship rather than lead it forward and flourishing. Or maybe you even want to think this morning about the broader public topic that we're currently aware of and engaged in of systemic and institutional racism or some other form of systemic injustice because there are many forms of that kind of injustice. Psalm 51 invites us to lean into our guilt in productive activity around confession of sin and more than that, an appeal to God, not just for forgiveness, but the deepest kind of renewal of all inside of our interior spaces of the heart. So three things for us to think about in connection with this psalm this morning. The first, courage for confession, the language of confession, and the hope of confession. So think about the courage of confession for just a moment. What enables you to enter guilt productively? Larry Crabb is a Christian psychologist and writer, a spiritual director, and he says that nothing changes the human heart more than looking bad in the presence of love. It's that moment that you've almost certainly had in which you've had to own up to some failure in the most personal space of relationship with someone that you deeply love, and they receive that, right? They expose that even perhaps in you out of love rather than hate their desire for your goodness rather than your harm. And in that moment, that experience of love, you know what happens to your heart. You melt, right? You, you sort of sink into the confession very differently than in the absence of love. And so here in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist appeals to God for forgiveness and for cleansing to blot out his transgression. How? On the basis of God's steadfast love. And by his abundant mercy that he would blot out my transgressions. So the psalmist in this particular moment pulls some dark aspect of reality from his life or his culture or his society, our lives, our culture, our society, into the gaze of God who looks on us with steadfast love and abounding mercy. This is a way of talking about God's covenanted relationship with his people. The spaces in which God has said, I am your God and you will be my people. It's a space of deep commitment based on love, based on a love that will not go away or will not fade, based on mercy. So in the context of this relationship, the psalmist begins to imagine his ability to talk to God differently about sin and about guilt. The courage to confess, I think, is in some sense always driven by the character of the one to whom confession is owed. 
And it's their inner being that begins to awaken a new space for our own inner being, our own honesty. And that's what the psalmist does here. Brings the reality of his life to God, who loves and who abounds in love. The second aspect here that we need to think about is the language of confession. What are the words that you use when you confess sin? Verses 3 to 5, the psalmist says things like, I know, I acknowledge, I admit. In other words, as you begin to listen to these words roll off his or her tongue in confession of sin, there is no defense. There is no sense of deflection. There is no excuse-making. There is just simply the honest expression, I know, I acknowledge, I admit. There's no self-pity in the space of confessing sin. But notice very, very importantly, the one to whom confession is made. It is God. The psalmist simply says, against you and you only I have sinned. Now, the moment you begin to think about this, we're almost certainly thinking... Because of this kind of stuff. (laughs) Are we on? Okay, sorry, you folks listening uh, via the live stream. We had a few technical difficulties. We think we've uh, managed to get through them. So thanks, Christopher and Kevin, for doing that. Um, Just let me back up for just a, a second, maybe. So thinking about just... What is it that we have solidarity with one another in? I was in a conference a few years ago in which the theologian Willie Jennings was one of the speakers, and he just commented on our tendency to go into a room, uh, and you know, in those days when we could meet in rooms together at a at an event of some sort, whether it's Sunday worship or it's uh, a class or a or just a social gathering of some sort, then almost immediately when you go into that room, you try to find points of similarity with someone in the room. Maybe there's the obvious connection with gender or the obvious connection with someone's skin color or the obvious connection sometimes of our educational attainment or of some other marker of socioeconomic status that, in other words, everyone comes into the room with a little bit of uncertainty and insecurity. And we're all looking for something that gives us solidarity and a sense of personhood in that space. But he said this. He said the thing that actually binds us more alike or makes us more alike than anything else is that we stand alongside of one another as fellow sinners. We are broken human individuals. We express our humanity in broken ways. But in Jesus Christ, God offers the redemption by his grace. So think about this moment of sin, this moment of guilt that you brought to mind. Maybe it's personal, maybe it's the collective moment in which we're publicly thinking about institutionalized forms of racism These skewed ways of expressing our humanity are always violations of our life with God. 
And whenever we live with God in a diminished way, we always end up living with one another in a diminished way. The psalmist goes so far here as to begin to track his life to birth, as you know. It's uncomfortable to some degree. The psalmist says he was born into this world of sin and that his life has been a replication of the same throughout his own history. And he can say something as dramatic as, there is no health in me. This look into this space of dark truth about his life is not characterized by despair. It is not characterized by self-pity. It is not characterized by a sense of stuckness, but actually it is the very first step of freedom because he stands before the God who desires something for him. Verse 6 begins to speak of us, of the very things that God who loves us, who abounds in steadfast love, what he wants for us. He desires truth in the inner being, which is a way of beginning to talk about this coherence, this internal and outer coherence of person, that what is true of us in our deepest parts becomes true of us in our most externalized spaces of expression. And so he appeals to God to teach him wisdom in his secret heart, in my innermost being. The psalmist drags these dark parts of the self into the light of God's gaze who looks on him with love and who desires change at the deepest level for the sake of the psalmist and for the sake of God's people, for the sake of the world. God wants an inner and an outer integrity for us as human beings for the sake of his world. And so the words of confession here include very rightly these moments of asking that God would blot out the wrong, would undo the wrong, would cleanse us from the wrong and the stain of sin, but so much more than forgiveness is in view. It's the renewal of the person from the inside out, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 11 The psalmist begins to recognize that his life, his desire for his life, is to ever be lived before God who desires mercy for him, who extends mercy for him. That rather than live in some castaway way with God, that the psalmist instead would experience the fullness of God's presence. And by the way, the view here is not ever that God lost sight of David, but that David lost sight of God. And God keeps coming round to find David, and he's done that most recently in these words from Nathan the prophet, so that David might renew this intimate space of honesty in his life with God, a renewed longing for life with God and a renewed way of life with neighbor. And from this life, David would then begin to take up his vocation as a human being and as king in Israel with the Spirit of God and the sails of his life leading him through his vocation, rather than always glancing away from God's presence and love. Courage to confess our sins, the words that we wrap around our confession, and now finally the hope of confession. It's transformation of a life so that we become worshipers. Verses 15 to 17. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. 
For many of you, these are very familiar words because they show up in the context of Christian worship in so many different spaces. If you've ever participated in morning prayer or evening prayer, you know that these words are included in the liturgy of those prayers. Open our lips, O Lord, and our mouths will proclaim your praise. In other words, we acknowledge the need of God to do something, but notice how they flow in the context of the psalm. They're not standalone words that we can sort of live with in a compartmentalized way. They're the overflow of David's confession itself. They're the overflow of a life that is beginning to let go of ego and let go of himself and emptying himself, yielding himself to the loving gaze of God whose eyes are on his life. Notice again how the psalmist begins to think about and meditate on the desires of God. Verse 16, what makes God delight? What makes him smile upon us? Sometimes we think it's the emptiness of our rituals, actually. We do. We think, I, you know, many of us grew up in Christian traditions or religious traditions in which it was checking the boxes that we thought would make God happy. Showing up for church, going to Sunday school. Maybe you talk to someone about Jesus this week. You check the box. But what the psalmist begins to help us to see that it's not our empty rituals of worship. It's not a photo op with the Bible in our hands. It's not words of prayer spoken in some particular context. It's not putting a dollar in the offering plate when it passed pass by. It's not your church attendance. It's not checking any of these boxes off. But it's a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart God does not despise. God delights in our honesty around our weakness, our confession of sin. What God wants for us most is to stop living with the illusion of our own greatness and control and just be who we are before his gaze. No posturing no doing, letting go of whatever it is that you lean into for your sense of self when you walk into the room and you want to know that there's solidarity and that you have a self, that you have an identity that you've achieved in some sense. Sometimes that has to do with our vocations. Sometimes it has to do with being recognized in certain ways in the workplace. Sometimes it has to do with having a sense of achievement or wealth. Sometimes it's with the resume that you imagine yourself to be building. Sometimes it's with tremendous acts of service that on the outside look so generous, but on the inside are so much more about you than your neighbor. Sometimes it has to do with taking refuge in skin color or our physical beauty that we bring into the room. And on and on the list of all of the things that we can lean into for a sense of self. But what God wants is the real you the part of you that you may be hiding, the depth of darkness even about you. He wants you to just be in his presence and to not run from his gaze, but to let him in love and abounding mercy look on the whole of who you are as a person. This is what God wants. He wants it for each of us, however bad we find ourselves to be in some particular moment, individually or even collectively as a larger community. God wants the real you. How do we know that? How do we know that he wants the real us? And how do we know that if we take the risk of being vulnerable about some darkness in us, that God won't actually crush us 
with the knowledge of his holiness, with the greatness of his holiness, how do we know that God's gaze upon our broken and contrite heart will lead to a space of renewal rather than our further depletion? Because in Jesus' last moments of life, just think about him on the cross for a moment. Here is God in person in our world. And he's confronted, right, truth in person, showing up in a real living human being, someone you could touch, someone you could listen to their words and the tone of their words, someone that you could trust the words of. Here is God in person on our world, hanging on a cross, gazing upon what by all accounts would be the failed human project. What does Jesus say in those moments of his own encounter of abuse. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. How do we know he'll act upon that request? Because of Jesus' last words. Jesus breathes his last so that our lives might be renewed by his resurrection spirit. And his spirit would be captured in the sails of our hearts and our lives. So that as we take up life in this real world that is still very broken. That all the remnant of our days we would live empowered by his presence by his guiding love, and it would change the way we see ourselves. It would change the way we live with our neighbor. It would lead to flourishing for all persons everywhere. That's the desire of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would meet us as we think on these words of this ancient psalm, this ancient prayer of confession. And would you help us to find meaningful ways that we might see our lives caught up in these words, that we would understand how they're beneficial to each of us individually, but also collectively as two congregations. And as they help us think even about what it means to have grown up in our families or what it means to live as citizens of Philadelphia or wherever we're listening from, would you help us to know how we inhabit these words for the glory of Jesus? Meet us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.